the first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. As long as there is domestic violence in the world, nobody else around an abuser is safe. Because if you're willing to hurt someone you love, it's not a big stretch before you're willing to hurt somebody else. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek, and I am sitting next to Alexis Linkletter. I almost said your name wrong. And next to Billy Jensen, because I'm so fucking excited because we are recording our first podcast in person in over a year. A year. A whole year. We are back, bitches. We're fully vaxxed. We're all together. Yes. We're hugging. I'm just so excited. We're vaxxed to the max. Vaxxed to the max. It is so surreal to all actually be back together. I mean, Billy and I have been together for more than anyone would like to (laughs) understand. Seriously, yes. That being said, though, it's like... No, this is... It feels normal again. It feels normal. It's really fun. I think that we've gotten so used to recording virtually that we didn't realize what great energy it brings to record together. It's just different, and it's it's unlike anything. You, I fucking hate virtual shit for that reason, because mm-hmm. it's like you just can't have the connection. Yes, and here's the thing with virtual shit is that we're very efficient. Very Like efficient. it takes 30, 30 minutes, and we've been here for about seven hours, but <laughs> it's not – the magic isn't there. No, we just – So the magic is back, people. No, the I gotta magic say, is back. When COVID happened, I remember being kind of relieved. It's like, cool. I don't have to go places. I don't have to do things. It'll save me time. It'll save me effort. But ultimately, I died inside quite a bit. You know what takes up all your time is sadness. Mm. Sadness? Just a lot of sadness and emptiness. Mm -hmm. And immobility, which isn't good for your joints. My (laughs) back hurts. It's not good. I know. We've we've aged a lot in the past year. But you know what? Let's just jump into the day, Billy. What day is it today? You know what? Today is April 28th, and it's National Superhero Day. What? Wow. Who's your favorite superhero, Alexis? Um... (laughs) Okay. Uh, Animal Girl. Animal Girl. Okay. <laughs> Love Animal um, Girl. She's great. Centaur. Centaur. Is there like a? Is I don't know. Superhero. I don't fucking know superheroes, but I like animals and people. The only thing that I can think of about superheroes is when I dated the superhero <laughs> that was on Hollywood and Highland. That wasn't even a real superhero. He dressed up trying to Wait, take pictures with people on you Hollywood. D- and you Highland. dated one of those guys at, at Highland Highland. You know that about the story. Billy. I wrote about it in my book. Act like a lady who get it in stores today. <laughs> in stores today. No, I dated this guy that was. He was starring in an a independent film that he wasn't being paid for. He was in his 40s, and he was uh, a superhero that was down on his luck. Mm. So to get ready for the role, he would go to Hollywood oh. and Highland. And act like a superhero and down yeah. on his luck. Act on like act like a real superhero and try that to take pictures sense. with people. Yeah. But he wasn't dressed up as a Superman or a Batman. Uh-huh. He was just dressed up as his whatever superhero Some he was. Some weird superhero. Like Red and like Yellow Like Animal Man. Girl or Centaur. Centaur Girl, <laughs> yeah. which is what I would do. So that's my least favorite superhero. I don't know what my favorite is. What's your I mean, favorite? I'll be like Wonder Woman, I guess. Like I'm a feminist, whatever. <laughs> or whatever. Well, there, there's Cheetah. Cheetah is the no, uh, enemy of Wonder Woman. On. Cheetah okay, girls? Yeah. What's your favorite superhero? Uh, I, green Lantern? I, I gotta say, no. Absolutely. Superhero. Absolutely oh, Superman. Not. Sorry. Batman. I know my favorite superhero. It's the Green Power Ranger. Tommy. That's not... <laughs> 
a thing. <laughs> he was so hot. He had long hair, ponytail. Jacqueline, that's like saying turn you're into the white ranger animal girl. You're the same shit as yeah. me. Billy likes uh, the Green Lantern. I do not like the Green Lantern. The Green Lantern mm. is not. You're bat. You like Batman. I do like Batman, but I do like Superman because he had so much power, and then he was just like, "I'm just going to be a journalist." Ooh, I like Superman too. Mm. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, I feel like I Superman's see you good shit. liking that. Yeah, and they're always hot. The Supermen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, super okay. sexy. Okay, well, I mean, are there any other good days, or are we just landing on superhero day? <sighs> it's International Guide Dog Day too. Guide dog, oh. that's adorable. Yeah. Listen, we need that. Um, we do. We don't deserve dogs. No, we don't. They're too good for this world. All yes. right. Well, you know what? That's enough of that. So let's turn on the lights and turn up your anxiety. Because this could be you. The setting for today's case is Seminole, Texas, and the name Seminole comes from the Native Americans who to this day live in nearby Oklahoma, and the word means wild or people who live at a distance. And it's the seat of Gaines County, and according to the Seminole Sentinel, which is the local newspaper, it was the fourth safest place in Texas as today's case unfolded. Our first degree's name is Heather, who says Seminole is one of those places where everyone knows everyone. It's a small town, around like 7,000 people. It's primarily a farming community. It's mostly peanut farming relative to other places. Large population of Mennonites there. And those peanuts and Mennonites are really the thing that that little town is known for. And uh, it kind of has the same problems that other small rural places have, which is a lot of rural brain drain and a lot of drug issues. People tend to know each other, or if you don't know somebody, you know their dad really well, or you, you know you play golf with their uncle. So today's case takes us back to March 4th of 2017. Movies Logan, Get Out, and Fifty Shades Darker were in theaters, and Ed Sheeran's Shape of You and Rihanna's Love on the Brain were at the top of the music charts. And it was on the day of March 4th that Heather, first degree, received a strange call from her mom who was asking about her cousin, Patricia. I was dog sitting for my mom at her house. She had gone to see my new little baby great nephew who had just been born. And she was on her, she was driving back. And she called me because people were posting praying for you, praying for you all over Patricia's Facebook page. None of us knew what was going on. We just knew that something was wrong with Patricia. And eventually my cousin was able to figure out what had happened. She made my mom pull over onto the side of the road because she didn't know how she was going to react. And my mom ended up getting lost trying to get back on the highway when she was trying to call me. But I was sitting on my mom's couch watching Forensic Files, actually. And I got a call from mom and paused it. The news Heather's mom shared left her shocked to the core. She told me Patricia's been shot. The first thing I could think to say was, after all the things that she's been through, she gets shot now? Before we continue, we have to tell you a little more about Patricia. 
as well as her relationship to her first degree Heather and her past and present. Patricia was Heather's cousin. She was 59 years old and worked as a healthcare provider, which as we've seen, particularly this past year, is a profession that takes a lot of empathy, patience, and compassion. Patricia was a wife, a mother, a stepmother, a grandmother. You get the point. She was completely committed to her family. But to give you the context needed to push the story forward, we need to go back to the beginning. She was one of the sweetest people that I knew. And she had been through a whole lot in her life. So she was really just the most compassionate person. Um, She had dealt with a really serious drug addiction for a lot of her youth. Patricia, like so many Americans, struggled with a serious drug addiction. One that could have taken her life if she had failed to get a hold of it. But through sheer strength and determination, she was able to overcome it. When her sister passed away, I think is really when she decided she tried to turn her life around a lot before that. But when she lost her sister, she completely turned herself around. And Patricia really did turn it all around, doing a full 180. And when she was on the other side of her addiction, she became the most fantastic mother, stepmother, and partner that she could be. So here's some more necessary contextual information. Patricia had a longtime partner, and like most very, very long relationships, they had their ups and downs. Her spouse, Jimmy Marquez, they remained very close, and she was always part of the family, even when they were kind of on the outs. Patricia and her husband Jimmy had rocky periods where they would briefly split, but they always found their way back to each other. Well, she very much had a blended family. Uh, She had two sons and a daughter that were her biological kids, and she also had multiple stepchildren. Patricia was active in the lives of her family. She took care of her kids, her stepkids, and their kids too. And she was particularly close with her stepdaughter, Tiffany Gronick. And Tiffany was a mother as well to four children, whom she had had with her husband, 31-year-old Jacob Gronick. Jacob had been born and raised in Kansas before moving to Seminole. In 2009, Jacob and Tiffany were married, and between then and 2017, their children were born. And it's no surprise that with four kids, they welcomed any help they could get. And based on what Heather shared, this family really looked after one another. Everything that Patricia did was always done for the best interest of Tiffany's children, who Patricia saw and treated as her own grandkids, despite not being blood related to them. Patricia and Jimmy tried to instill these types of ideals in Tiffany and Jacob as they raised their family. But however, over time, it appeared that Jacob and Tiffany's relationship adopted a rather recognizable archetype. They turned into this contentious makeup and breakup type of couple, you know, the awkward kind of couple that get into loud, frequent public fights. They had really frequent problems with each other. And I know that Tiffany's dad was frequently upset with both of them over their behavior and the way that they treated each other and the way that they behaved in front of his grandchildren. He was really not happy about the situation between them. And I don't think anybody else was either. It was just a really tense situation. All right. So here's what we know about Jacob and Tiffany. There was infidelity on both sides of this marriage. Although the explicit specifics of these affairs are 
kind of unclear. Needless to say, these indiscretions, they stoked the flames and fighting between this couple. It was a tumultuous relationship that took a toll not only on Tiffany and Jacob, but the rest of the family too, including Patricia and Tiffany's dad, Jimmy, who found themselves having to intervene, especially when these fights happened in front of the grandkids. And that's not an uncommon thing to have children very young in this part of the country. So with that many children, they probably started having children when they were barely legal adults. That's an immensely stressful situation for a young couple. You'd have to imagine that being a young couple with four kids, you know, you're probably dealing with a decent amount of stress and this could burden even the strongest relationship. At some point, their relationship started to fracture. My, I, my understanding is that there was maybe infidelity on both sides of that. And I think that there was some at least emotional abuse on Jacob's side. But here's the thing. When you look at Jacob's Facebook, which is still active, which is interesting, there's no sign of an unhappy couple to be seen at all. Jacob's cover photo is a snap of his four kids. His profile picture is a family photo of him, Tiffany, and the children. And if you scroll down to his wall, you can see that he and Tiffany would post these little flirty messages to each other on their Facebook pages. But you look back, you know, that's the thing. Everything looks perfect on social media when the reality is anything but. Right. It always looks perfect from however far away you are, especially on social media. So we've discussed domestic violence several times on our show since launching The First Degree. But on today's episode, we're going to punctuate the unexpected and unforeseen implications that domestic violence has the ability to inflict. As far as the dysfunction in Tiffany and Jacob's relationship, it was clear that the tension was compounding steadfastly. And things ultimately reached a fever pitch and would definitely culminate on the afternoon of March 4th, 2017. The day itself began with a family barbecue at Tiffany and Jacob's house. Tiffany, Jacob, Patricia, and a grandmother spent that Saturday grilling in the backyard. This gathering had all the trappings of a chill spring day in Texas. There was laughing, there was grilling, and there was beer drinking. But at around 9 p.m., Tiffany, Jacob, Patricia, and Grandma decided to head somewhere else to keep this party moving. They went to get a few drinks at a local watering hole called the Parika Terrace Restaurant. It's worth mentioning that Jacob had consumed a full 12-pack of beer prior to leaving his house and arriving at this restaurant. So they all go. But after they arrived, Patricia and Grandma decide they're over it. And they're tired. So they took off and went home, leaving Tiffany and Jacob to mingle for themselves. Well, Jacob and Tiffany had gone to this restaurant slash bar kind of place in town. And I guess they had gone there for dinner. And soon after they got there, they started arguing. We've all seen couples like this at bars and restaurants. It's uncomfortable to witness. And alcohol exacerbates the intensity of these verbal disputes. And as we know, alcohol also eliminates logic and brings on hair trigger responses. And there was some serious drinking going on this particular evening. 
In fact, according to the owners of this restaurant, Tiffany and Jacob had ordered 15 shots of tequila within a span of two hours. Jacob had consumed most of them. By the time the fighting began, the couple had already been there for two hours, which means they had likely consumed a significant amount of alcohol. In fact, the reason that Tiffany and Jacob's argument started is because Jacob offered Tiffany another drink, but she turned it down. So for whatever reason, Jacob did not like this at all, and he began cursing at Tiffany and calling her names in front of all the patrons and staff. Tiffany walked out to the back patio of Parika's to smoke a cigarette. Jacob followed her and told her if she left him there that night, he would quote-unquote kill her. So Jacob was becoming more and more enraged, and by this point, all eyes and ears in this restaurant were on the two of them. Tiffany watched Jacob become more and more intoxicated, and she wanted to remove herself from this situation immediately. And at some point during all this, Tiffany called Patricia to come and get her and get her out of this situation because she knew that he might get violent at this point. To be clear, we didn't hear anything specific about Jacob being violent with Tiffany in the past, but it's something you can infer based on what Heather is saying as well as based on, frankly, what happens next. I guess Jacob was getting really ugly because the owner asked him to leave and he wouldn't leave and a random other person who just happened to be there that night helped him, helped the owner remove Jacob from the premises. To clarify, Jacob is getting so rowdy and imposing by this point that the owners of the restaurant wanted him gone. But the owner, who is 46-year-old Miguel Diaz, could not handle Jacob on his own. Luckily, a good Samaritan, a 51-year-old Ernest Shelton, saw that the situation was getting out of hand and stepped in to help Miguel Diaz. The owner and the guy who was just passing through town get Jacob out. And at that time, he threatened them. Jacob then pivots his frustrations towards these two men. And he's hurling threats at Miguel Diaz and Ernest Shelton. In fact, witnesses remember Jacob walking out the door and saying to Diaz, by morning, you'll be a dead man. Tiffany, who was still present at this point, was trying to neutralize the situation and stop it from escalating. She assured Diaz and Shelton that Jacob was just bluffing. But Tiffany still wasn't going to put up with Jacob's behavior. And she also knows he has a history of getting behind the wheel while drunk. In fact, Jason had gotten two DUIs in the past. So Tiffany seizes an opportunity and snags the keys to Jacob's truck so he can't drive. And then she slips out of the restaurant and leaves with her stepmom, Patricia, who had arrived to pick her up and just get her out of there. And now brace yourselves because how things unfold from here on out are completely senseless, shocking, and honestly fucking terrifying. So by this point, Tiffany had removed herself from this escalating situation. She left with Patricia taking Jacob's keys with her. Jacob is absolutely enraged by everything that's going on. He's drunk and angry and petulant. And on top of all of that, he doesn't have a ride home. So he walks down Main Street and he ultimately enters this convenience store, which is where he runs into a guy named Joshua. So Jacob doesn't know Joshua, but he chats him up and says something to this guy that convinces him to drive Jacob home. And while he was reluctant at first, Joshua eventually agrees. So he takes Jacob home, which is about a five-minute ride away from this convenience store. 
And as far as the timeline of what happens next, the details are kind of murky, but at some point Jacob makes it to the house that he shares with Tiffany and gets this other set of keys. And these are belonging to a white Chevy Suburban that the couple owns together. So Tiffany is not home at this point, which means she's still with her stepmom, Patricia, somewhere. So Jacob and Tiffany do not cross paths at this time. Jacob gets in the Chevy and he heads back to town. Okay, so we're seeing this. If you visualize it, yeah. Jacob and Tiffany are have not crossed paths, but they shall and probably will at some point, right? Like things are escalating. But either way, at this point, it's approximately 11.40 p.m. Jacob, after taking the white Chevy, drives back to Perika's restaurant and pulls into the parking lot. And Perika's is where he got into this confrontation with Miguel Diaz, the owner, and uh, Ernest Shelton, the bystander. It's where he got into a fight with his wife, Tiffany. He gets out of the car. He emerges from the vehicle. And in his hand, he's a 22 caliber Springfield pistol. He begins waving this pistol angrily over his head. So Jacob is screaming and yelling for the owner of the restaurant, Miguel Diaz, to come outside and face him. So this is some scary shit. We've got an angry, drunk, belligerent fucking asshole waving a gun in the air, literally threatening the life of a restaurant owner who just threw a guy out for endangering his other patrons. He didn't do anything to deserve this kind of threatening. But due to the sheer terror of what might happen... Miguel Diaz's wife, who ran the restaurant with him, immediately grabbed the phone to call police, and she called 911. Now, still at the restaurant was Ernest Shelton. He was that good Samaritan who earlier had helped Diaz remove Jacob from the restaurant. And Ernest came to Miguel Diaz's aid again. And amidst the chaos, the sharp blast of a gunshot reverberated in the parking lot. Ernest Shelton, who was just trying to help, was in the wrong place at the wrong time, was shot in the forehead at point-blank range. The sight of Ernest falling down lifeless with a gunshot wound to the head wasn't even enough to snap Jacob out of this murderous fit of rage. Behind Ernest stood the restaurant owner, Miguel Diaz, and Jacob raised his weapon up once again. Miguel was actually quick enough to knock Jacob's arm down before the gun went off. and Actually, the gun went off twice. But still, those two bullets that were meant for his head cut into Miguel, The first into his groin, and the second entered his back. Jacob then raised the twenty-two caliber pistol again and pointed at Miguel, aiming to kill once more. He pulls the trigger, but miraculously, the gun fails to go off. And the weapon's failure to fire was sobering enough to snap Jacob out of this insane violence just for a second. So according to the records, as these two men lay bleeding on the ground, Jacob pulls himself together and he makes a phone call. He calls Tiffany and Tiffany is with her stepmom, Patricia, and has no idea what has transpired at Perico's restaurant. She has no idea that Jacob just shot two people. So when she answers the phone, Tiffany is pretty confused because Jacob is making these belligerent threats about how, quote, it was about to be like at Parika's. And Tiffany just has like no idea what Jacob is talking about on this phone call. 
And she also doesn't know that Jacob's loaded pistol held at least 11 rounds, which meant that there are still several bullets in the clip of the weapon in Jacob's hands. So this phone call between Jacob and Tiffany ends. Jacob gets back into the Chevy and he heads towards the house that he shares with Tiffany. And this is where Patricia and Tiffany converge with Jacob. The two women are sitting inside Patricia's car, idling in front of Tiffany and Jacob's home. Patricia was in the driver's seat and Tiffany in the passenger seat. Jacob pulled up to the house and put the Chevy in park. Patricia had taken Tiffany to get an overnight bag from the house that she shared with Jacob. And I, I wish over and over and over again that they had not done that, that they had just gone somewhere else. Because right around the time they got there, Jacob pulled up and he pulled out his gun. And shot at both of them. One shot after the next, Jacob emptied the clip into the driver's side door of Patricia's car. Patricia is hit. Tiffany is hit. He hit Tiffany in the hand. She got very lucky. I'm sure she doesn't feel lucky, but she was fortunate to only sustain a minor injury. And he hit Patricia in the face. Coldly and calmly, Jacob walks around Patricia's car towards the passenger side door where panicked and terrified Tiffany is injured and bleeding. Jacob reloads the gun as he beelines towards his wife. So one thing Tiffany has over Jacob right now is that she's not nearly as intoxicated as he is. She acts with some pretty incredible agility. She climbs out of the car window and runs toward the white Chevy Suburban that Jacob had driven there. So she jumps in, she throws the gear shift in the drive, and she drives straight to the Gaines County Sheriff's Office. When she gets there, she's covered in blood. And through tears, she tells the officers that Jacob shot Patricia. Only then she actually looks down and realizes that one of the bullets Jacob fired had actually took off a portion of her finger. So when officers and EMS workers respond to the scene, they find Patricia slumped over in the front seat of her car. She has a gunshot wound to her head, and she's bleeding and barely clinging on to life. Jacob is absolutely nowhere to be found, so the question is, where did this dangerous, drunk, psychopath slither off to? And what additional damage would he do? He spent the entire night and into the next day running around all over town threatening people, and... Seminole PD and Gaines County Sheriff's Department, the Texas DPS, the Department of Public Safety, surrounding jurisdictions, all of them were helping out with trying to find him. It's a small town. Everybody knew who Jacob was. And so they were able to immediately tell the police who shot these two people in the parking lot. And of course, when his wife and mother-in-law get shot, they know that it's him. There's no question. So, it's an all-hands-on-deck situation. Local law enforcement needed to track Jacob down. He's a man on a murderous rampage. They searched for several hours with nothing. Then police pinged his phone, which reveals that he actually was back at the home that he shared with Tiffany. They send out almost 40 cops to this home. Jacob is arrested without a fight and taken to jail. And it's there that he made a soul-chilling admission to one of the officers. Quote, I only kill people that bother me. He is held on $1.6 million bond, which was later upgraded to $2 million. 
Meanwhile, news of Jacob's carnage starts to spread. He shot those four people, and they all ended up in the hospital. Tiffany, like I said, had minor injuries, and the owner of the restaurant ended up being hospitalized, but he survived. But Ernest Shelton, the good Samaritan who Jacob shot in the head, he didn't make it. Ernest had a family. He had friends. He had a life. All taken away because of a drunken tantrum from a madman. He made the selfless and heroic choice to help a stranger, and his life was taken. It's heartbreaking and sickening. He was just passing through on his way home to Arkansas and was helping the owner to get this problem customer out, and he ended up losing his life over it. Meanwhile, emergency workers had rushed Patricia to the hospital where she was in critical condition. Doctors were trying desperately to save her life, and all her family could do at this point was wait and remain hopeful that she would pull through. She was brought to the hospital in Lubbock and put in ICU, and they had to you know, scan her brain to see if her brain was still living or not, or if she had suffered brain death. Unfortunately, that is what happened. Patricia would not recover. The doctors who worked to save her life ultimately determined her head wounds were, quote, not survivable. Her death certificate ended up showing the date of when she was shot because brain death is legal death in Texas. A couple of days after that, they removed her from life support. Just like that, Patricia was gone. Patricia's family struggled to cope with the pain of losing such an important matriarchal figure in this family. Restaurant owner Miguel Diaz stayed in the hospital for a couple of weeks. And when he left, he carried a breathing apparatus home with him, which he would need throughout the duration of his recovery. Patricia's entire family were dealing with this impossible mixture of emotions. And then there was Tiffany, who had been shot by her husband and watched him kill her stepmom, who was like her best friend. I felt awful for Tiffany because she watched one person she loved shoot another person she loved in the face directly in front of her. You know, I can't imagine the level of trauma that she has continued to experience from this. There's so much pain, so much suffering. For what? Why did this happen? Heather has a theory. When I finally tried to wrap my head around what Jacob had done, I just... It was hard to believe how he'd come to the point where he was willing to do this and willing to try to deprive his kids of their mom and depriving them of their grandmother figure. I would not be surprised if if in this situation, when they were arguing, Tiffany told Jacob, I'm leaving you, I'm going to go pack a bag and get the fuck out. And he just lost it. So other than having understanding for for survivors of domestic violence and being continuing to be supportive even when that can be very frustrating is really the only thing we can do because this escalated this this did not start with shooting four people in a parking lot or by the side of the road. 
get started inside somebody's home. Heather is right. This situation did not begin at the parking lot that night. This began inside Tiffany and Jacob's home, a pattern of dysfunction and abuse that progressively got worse. In all likelihood, Jacob felt his grasp on Tiffany slipping away. Tiffany threatened to leave, and Jacob couldn't let that happen. The questions about the horrible events of that night didn't stop here. This question of why Patricia was another one. Heather theorizes that Patricia's kind and loving nature, her willingness to help anyone under any circumstances, ultimately put her in arm's way that night. I think that's one of the reasons that she ended up in this situation that night was because she just wanted to help people. And she would do anything that anybody asked of her, and she would give you the shirt off her back. And I think she saw parts of herself in Tiffany, and so she was trying to help her. Jacob was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, attempted capital murder, and a capital murder charge. He pled not guilty to the charges, and get this, he denied that it was him who had shot at all these people. And this was despite the fact that everyone in town knew who Jacob was and had witnessed him perpetuate aspects of this crime. And not to mention, remember, after being shot, Tiffany drove directly to the police department and told them exactly what Jacob had done. I don't understand his thought process about that because you know these people and you know that they know you. And we could sort of wrap our heads around why Jacob would start denying it was him who did these things. He's facing major charges and serious jail time. And if convicted, leaves a judge with two options, life in prison or the death penalty. Jacob doesn't want that, so he lies. Yes. And as the weeks and months passed, Patricia's family was forced with the daunting task of trying to pick up the pieces and adjust to life without her. Patricia's family mourned and processed this tragedy together best they could. But as Jacob's trial approached, a rift would cause a fracture within this family. And this was caused by the fact that Tiffany changed her position on all of the events that had transpired on the night Patricia was killed. By the trial, by the time the trial came around, a year or so later, she had started saying that it wasn't Jacob. Jacob, it, Jacob didn't shoot me. Jacob didn't do this. When everybody in town knew absolutely that he did, there was no question about who done it. None. But Jacob was denying that it was him as well. Let's take a moment to digest what Heather is talking about. Tiffany was the one who watched Jacob shoot her stepmother Patricia while sitting in the car with her. And now she's defending her husband, the man who had done these rather atrocious things. When Tiffany started saying, oh, no, it wasn't him, that really fractured her relationship with her dad because Jimmy loved her. Their relationship was not always perfect, but they really cared about each other. And the fact that Jacob did this and Tiffany was standing by him, I think, really hurt Jimmy a lot. And remember, Jimmy was trying to help his daughter and son-in-law with their own personal issues. Jimmy can't ignore that Patricia is gone because of Jacob, and their family would never be the same again. But before you judge Tiffany, what she's doing here is very much textbook when it comes to the behavior of domestic abuse victims. So if you look at 
several cases where domestic abuse victims are tasked with testifying against their abusers, you often see them taking their side. And it's just built in to these abusive patterns. Like these people are scared of their abusers. So when they're especially faced with this having to look them in the eye in court and this guy is glaring at them, of course they're going to change their story. You know, um, it's very textbook. Well, and it's like the fear of like, God forbid he would get out or anybody in that situation, they wouldn't be charged of the crime. And then now they're just out in the free world. Like that has got to be the most terrorizing thing in the entire world. Thinking of not kind of folding yeah. to yeah. support them. Now it's on top of like measuring what, what potentially could happen, what the fallout could happen if, if they said something. Uh, knowing that this person had probably done bad things in the past and gotten away with it and thinking that he's going to get away with it again, he might come and, and do something even worse to me. Yep. We all have a lack of understanding of the psychological implications. We have no idea the hold that abusers have on their victims. It's a lot easier to look at somebody else's situation and see it as a black and white situation where it's so nuanced, especially with domestic abuse. Um, It's such a nuanced thing that you do not understand the relationship or the power struggle that happens. Especially when you're married to this person for, this was 2017, they got married in 2009. You have to imagine they dated before that. They had four kids. It's your entire life. Yeah. Yeah. You don't know anything different and the psychological influence and manipulation has been coming at you from several directions like we have to reserve our judgment in these situations we don't get it unless we've been there well and also tiffany has literally she's experienced the worst loss imaginable it's not she's not doing it for the fun of doing it no and she's been like he shot her finger off he killed a loved one who knows how fearful she is of him so The bottom line is that we have to look at Tiffany in this residual behavior. We have to look at it with compassion. At first, I was really surprised by it, but I I actually work in the criminal justice system and have in various capacities for a lot of my adult life. I guess all the training that I've received about domestic violence has made me more compassionate toward her than anything else. I, I just have a lot of empathy for her. I can't imagine seeing what she saw and being okay again. I I just feel sorry for her. A lot of my family is mad at her. I just can't make myself be angry with her. At the end of the day, Jacob is still the father of her children, and she's the one who's going to have to live with this and explain this to her kids. So I, I can't imagine the amount of pressure that a person would be under in that circumstance. And while Heather had compassion for Tiffany's position, many of the family members who were feeling Patricia's loss, they just could not take that position on themselves. They were hurt by Tiffany's defense of Jacob. Most of what I heard about through my family was just how upset everybody was with Tiffany for changing her story and how upset everybody was with Jacob for basically lying because, you know, he he tried to pretend like this wasn't him and that he was innocent and that he didn't go all over town threatening people, that he didn't shoot four people. And the audacity of that just really struck everybody. It's just so obtuse. (laughs) The deliberate obtuseness of him trying to claim innocence is ridiculous. Jacob's trial approached quickly. And soon his fate would be in the hands of a jury. The trial-
trial actually happened in lightning speed for a murder trial. And what what I can say that I really appreciate about the way that Seminole handled this and the way that Gaines County handled this is that, you know, they got a visiting judge who had experience in murder trials to come and do the trial. They got a special prosecutor who was actually a dis- was a defense attorney in Lubbock, so had a lot of experience with felony violent crimes. The prosecutor's plan for the trial began with painting Jacob as a dangerous threat that he ultimately was. They even compared his actions to the shooters at Columbine in 1999, and more recently, the Orlando nightclub shootings in 2016. So the defense didn't like that. They snapped back quickly and argued that Jacob did not have the firepower and body count for that type of comparison. So in order to prove capital murder, the prosecution had to pin all four shootings as a connected chain of events with a sole purpose to kill. So there were several testifying witnesses, including Tiffany herself, and her testimony was emotional. And according to the Seminole Sentinel, in a turn of events, Tiffany ultimately admitted that her husband was the one who not only shot Patricia, but started loading the gun again as she escaped. And Tiffany's testimony was really a relief for everybody. But the next focus and question for onlookers was whether or not Jacob would testify himself. And the answer to that question was yes. When Jacob took the stand, he blamed his actions on a concoction of beer, tequila, and antidepressants, which he said caused him to black out that particular night. And he denied remembering the events of that evening. And when it came to the shootings, he again claimed his innocence by saying, quote, it wasn't me. But the jury didn't buy Jacob's story. They convicted him of capital murder, and he was sentenced immediately. Here's Heather again. I knew he would be found guilty, but what I was really interested in was to find out what the sentencing would be. And I was really happy with the life without parole sentence. If you're willing to shoot strangers and people that you are supposed to love in the street or in a parking lot, I don't think it's safe for the public for you to be roaming around ever again. Following Jacob's conviction, he filed an appeal, which was denied. And while Patricia's family rest assured knowing that Jacob is behind bars, there are no winners here because they still don't have Patricia. Heather only wishes Patricia could have known how much she meant to her. I've had time to think about it over the last few years, and she has left such a legacy of kindness. And I think about her frequently, and I hardly ever think about the person who killed her, which I think probably says something about her and what a light she was to me. And to Heather, one of the additional tragedies of Patricia's murder is that she had completely turned her life around, only to have it taken away. But the way that she had changed her life and was on such a good path for her to be cut down like that. In speaking with Heather, we asked her why she was compelled to reach out to us to share Patricia's story. I can't remember what episode it was. I remember thinking, listening to it, man, if someone were talking about my murdered family member, I would want it to be just like that because it's so compassionate and so kind and so victim-focused. And then I thought, you do have a family member who was murdered, Heather. 
I think sometimes cases that happen in small towns or cases that are domestic violence related like this can be overlooked. A wife being shot by her husband is unfortunately the typical, if you can call it that, murder. So sometimes people just sort of gloss over it and think, well, that doesn't affect me. And I want people to know that it does. It, it affects all of us. I think this is definitely a story about how domestic violence spreads to other people. You know, when you're a young woman going through the world, sometimes you might comfort yourself about your own risk of being out in public by thinking, well, statistically speaking, if I'm going to get murdered, it's going to be by a significant other, and I don't have an abuse of a significant other, so I'm safe. Heather's right, and it's why domestic violence is literally everyone's problem, even if you're not in an abusive relationship, because the potential violence isn't limited to the two people involved. And let's face it, Tiffany was lucky that she survived that night. She even testified to the fact that Jacob started putting more rounds in the pistol after he shot her stepmom. And Jacob undoubtedly intended to kill Tiffany that night. And Patricia, being the nice and compassionate person that she was, she was just trying to help Tiffany get away from somebody with a history of being dangerous. And let's talk about the prevalence of domestic violence in America. Now, the CDC reports that one in four women and one in nine men will experience violence in some form from their partner. There are also statistics regarding individuals who intervene in abusive relationships. And that's where this comes into play, because mm-hmm. it's not always the people in the relationships. Yeah. If you, Jack, were in a domestic violence, like I would intervene, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it puts everyone at danger. And it's why I think we talk about domestic violence a lot, and I think we see it a lot in most true crime cases. There's some aspect of it. But it doesn't just affect the people in those relationships. No. There's so much no. more violence that results as an implication. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence says family members like Patricia or just people who intervene make up 20% of deaths that result from domestic violence. That's crazy. It's a That's big insane. deal. It's a huge deal. Wow. And it's something we don't talk about a lot. Yeah. No. Yeah. Domestic violence is literally everyone's problem. And, you know, we all have to work towards fixing it. As long as there is domestic violence in the world, nobody else around an abuser is safe. Because if you're willing to hurt someone you love, it's not a big stretch before you're willing to hurt somebody else. So I think just in general, people being more understanding about the cycle of domestic violence and how abusers get their claws into the person they're abusing and it's by FBI statistics it takes seven interventions by law enforcement on average before an abuse victim can get away from their abuser and then when they do that is the most dangerous time There is help out there if you or someone you know is in one of these dangerous situations A good place to start is with the National Domestic Violence Hotline, and you can reach them at 1-800-799-SAFE. Well, huge thank you to Heather for being our first degree for this episode. If you're out there listening and you have a story to tell, please email us, hello at the first degree podcast 
thefirstdegreeconnect.com. You can follow us on Instagram at thefirstdegree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanek. Join our Facebook group. We're talking true crime all the time. And we are not going to stick around and kill some time tonight because we are planning on launching our second episode a week of only killing time and it's gonna fucking rule on thursdays on thursdays starting may 6th starting may 6th starting may 6th it's gonna be so good happy uh, what day he hasn't done the intro i got excited and remember only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close but But not that close close. oh shit we can do it the first time finally actually together wow happy superhero day what is it Oh, oh happy God. superhero day, centaur girl. Bad to the rescue. <laughs> Bad memories for me. <laughs> Bye, bitches. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring and creating original music for The First Degree, producing by Caitlin Cleveland, producing and writing by Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for Podcast One, producing as well. Sources for this episode are KCBD, Court Documents, Lubbock Online, News West Online, Seminole Sentinel, and as always, our first degree guest is always our largest source. <laughs>